Well, I often get the impression that Chris takes great delight in giving me particularly difficult passages uh, to preach from. Um, today we're looking at 1 John 5, 6 to 12, that passage that we had uh, read to us. And as Chris said very gleefully last week, it's probably the most difficult passage in 1 John. Uh, the particular difficulty lies in deciding what is meant by the water and the blood, which is mentioned in verse 6 and again in verse 8. And the commentators suggest at least five different uh, interpretations, different ways to understand uh, that, that, that expression. Um, and we could very easily spend an awful lot of time considering uh, the various suggestions and weighing the pros and cons and so on. Uh, but for the sake of time, we're not going to do that. Uh, for the sake of not boring you to tears, we're not going to do that. But most importantly, so as to not miss the really important things in the passage. Uh, we won't get bogged down in, in all of that. Rather, in the course of the passage, at the appropriate point, I'll simply explain how I understand the water and the blood and explain uh, my reasons for doing so. So I'm not going to dodge the difficult bit, but neither am I going to get bogged down in all of the, uh, the speculation. So let's uh, get into the passage. Uh, you'll see it begins, uh, this is he who came. Who's that referring to? Well, very clearly it's pointing back uh, to what's been said previously. And if you glance at verse 5, it's very clear that he who came must be Jesus. But notice that more than that, it's specifically Jesus who is the Son of God. Jesus who is the Son of God, that, that's emphatic. And it's telling us that the man whose name is Jesus, that the man who was born of Mary in Bethlehem and grew up in, in Nazareth with his brothers and sisters and who ate and drank and got hungry and thirsty and tired and was tempted, was also the eternal living God. He was simultaneously human and divine. When he came, he did so as the God-man. So why was John uh, so clearly asserting that the man Jesus is the Son of God? Well, from our previous times in 1 John, you remember that John's purpose uh, or purposes in, in writing his letter uh, was partly to reassure Christians of the, the reality of their faith and it was to counter the false teachings of a group known as the Gnostics uh, because some believers were being adversely affected by their teachings and their assurance, their confidence was being undermined and shaken. Now the Gnostics believed that all material stuff, whether it be animal, mineral or vegetable, was inherently evil and that only spiritual things 
can be considered to be good. And there are various consequences that, that spring from those beliefs. One of them is the denial of the incarnation of Jesus as the Son of God. To them, it would be impossible for the Son of God, who is spiritual and therefore good, to dwell in a, a material body because that is inherently evil. Uh, in view of that, some of the Gnostics uh, asserted that Christ only appeared to have a body. It wasn't a real body, it was an illusion. Uh, others said that the divine Christ came upon the man Jesus at his baptism, but then left him before his death on the cross. And that's what John was countering when he asserted that Jesus is the Son of God. Why did John consider it uh, so important to counter that teaching and assert that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, we, we see why if we look back at verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So he's speaking there of our faith. He's speaking there of our belief and he tells us how it comes about and what it is. Firstly, notice that being born of God precedes our faith. In other words, being born again is necessary in order to have faith. John said the same thing even more clearly back in verse 1 where he said, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You know, he's not saying everyone who believes will be born again. No, everyone who believes has already been born again. They believe because they've been born again. And, you know, many Christians are, are taught and believe that you must have faith in order to be born again. But that's the wrong way around. That's putting something that we do in the place of what we need God to do for us. Secondly, what is the faith that John says results from being born of God? Well, he goes on to say that the one who has such faith is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That that's a crucial part of this all-important faith that John's talking about. And you notice he's not saying simply believe in Jesus. It's believed that Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus being the Son of God is at the very heart of our faith and at the very heart of the gospel message. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. And it would be equally true to say, And if Jesus is not the Son of God, your faith is futile. John wasn't simply uh, clearing up a bit of a misunderstanding or dotting a few I's and crossing a few T's. He was asserting a truth that is of vital importance, uh, a matter of life and death. In fact, a matter of eternal life and death. Now, on the one hand, saying that such faith or belief that Jesus is the Son of God stems from first being born again, that could sound a bit mystical, couldn't it? It could almost sound to be quite irrational. Uh, on the other hand, 
expecting people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God simply because John says so, well, that could sound a lot like blind faith, couldn't it? So John goes on to show that although our faith cannot be objectively proven, it is neither irrational nor blind. You just cast your eyes over verses 6 to 12 and see how often that word testimony or, or something similar occurs. I reckon there are eight instances in those verses. And the Greek word that uh, has been translated there as testimony could equally be translated as witnesses or, or bear witness. So our belief that Jesus is the Son of God is well-founded. It's evidence-based. It's reasonable. Now, in our passage, John mentions four sources of testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And throughout, he emphasizes the reliability of that testimony. Firstly, we have the testimony of history. Saying that this is he who came, well, that immediately suggests an historical setting, doesn't it? Who came? Well, notice John doesn't just say Jesus, nor does he just say Christ. He says Jesus Christ. Well, once again, that's God-man language, speaking of one who is human and divine. And we're told that he came by water and blood. And as a, a standalone comment, that is undoubtedly very puzzling. What water and blood is John talking about? We, we begin to get some help with, with working that out as we see that John went on in verse 6 to, to add not by the water only but by the water and the blood. So first thing to notice there is that John has now introduced the definite articles for water and, and blood. It's the water and the blood. It says the same in verse 8. So he's not talking about water and blood in, in generalised terms. He's mentioning specific water that relates to something in particular uh, and specific blood that relates to something in particular. And the next thing to notice is John's emphasis that Jesus Christ did not come by the water only, but that he came by the water and the blood. It's not only, but also. If you're old enough, you'll remember a comedy programme by, by that name. Uh, it suggests there was no dispute about the fact that Jesus came by the water. It seems that the Gnostic teachers would have happily said that Jesus Christ came by the water. What was in dispute was whether or not Jesus Christ also came by the blood. Jesus insisted that Jesus, uh, sorry, John insisted that Jesus came by the water and the blood. But the Gnostics taught that he came by the water, but not the blood. Now, remember that the Gnostics taught that the divine Christ came upon the man Jesus at his baptism. So it seems likely that when John spoke of Jesus coming by the water, he was referring to the baptism of Jesus. The Gnostics could agree that Jesus came by the water. Um, you might question whether it's really true to say that Jesus came by or through his baptism. Yeah. Isn't it the case that he came as the God-man 
at his birth, or, or strictly at, at the time of his, his conception. Well, yes, that was when he came to earth, but the Greek word that's been translated as came doesn't always have the sense of having arrived somewhere from somewhere else. It can also mean appeared uh, in the sense of making a public appearance or, or being publicly seen or unveiled or revealed. And that was the case, wasn't it, when Jesus was baptised. His public ministry began at his baptism and he was revealed to be the promised Christ who was to come and he was declared to be the Son of God. What are we to understand by the blood then? Well, again, remember that the Gnostics taught that the divine Christ, who they thought came upon Jesus at his baptism, left him before his death. So it seems likely that when John spoke of Jesus Christ coming by the blood, he was referring to the death of Jesus on the cross. John's point is that contrary to Gnostic teaching, the man who died on the cross was as truly the son of God as the man who was baptised. Now John goes on in verse 8 to say that the water and the blood testify. Now, in what sense do Jesus' baptism and crucifixion testify that Jesus is the son of God? Well, at his baptism, uh, the emphasis was very much on his deity, wasn't it? His, he was declared to be the Son of God. Um, remember at Jesus' baptism, John the Baptist said, uh, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptise with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And then, of course, furthermore, there was that voice from, from heaven which said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Clearly that that was God himself declaring that Jesus, this man being baptised, uh, was his son, the son of God. At his crucifixion, his humanity was particularly evident. As only a real flesh and blood human being could be nailed to a cross and shed his blood uh, and die. Thus the water and the blood together testify that Jesus is both God and man. And you notice that the water and the blood, um, Christ's baptism and crucifixion are mentioned in, in chronological order, uh, emphasising that these were historical events. So history bears testimony to the fact that the man Jesus is the Son of God. However, how can we be sure that the accounts of these events are true? I mean, after all, human eyewitnesses, they can be mistaken. Bias can creep into the transmission of accounts. Errors can creep into documents and so on. So John goes on to add the testimony of the Spirit. Continuing in verse 6 we read, and the Spirit is the one who testifies. So it's not only the events of history that testify, there's a specific person who testifies and that is the Holy Spirit. 
You notice that the ESV says that he is the one who testifies. Now, the words the one don't actually appear in the Greek text. Um, I suspect that the translators have put it that way to try to convey the fact that the text isn't merely saying and the Spirit testifies, as though his testimony was just another piece of evidence to put alongside the testimony of history. A literal translation of the Greek would be, and the Spirit it is who testifies. And that sounds a bit like Yoda speak, doesn't it? But uh, the, the NIV actually manages to avoid that uh, and still convey the right sense by saying, and it is the Spirit who testifies. The idea seems to be that although the accounts uh, of historical events testify, it's the Holy Spirit who, who is the one who is really testifying. He was behind the accounts of those events. So to not receive the testimony of history is to not accept the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now John doesn't uh, specify exactly how the Spirit uh, testifies, but we, would, we shouldn't be surprised that he does because Jesus said uh, in John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So you see the role of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness about the truth about Jesus. Now in the first instance, the Holy Spirit was going to be sent to the disciples and Jesus went on to say to them, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the disciples would bear witness about Jesus as eyewitnesses once they'd received the Holy Spirit who is the witness. He is the one who testifies. Peter and the apostles affirm that to be the case when they were being questioned by the high priest when they'd miraculously escaped from prison. Uh, as part of their response, we read in Acts 5, 30-32, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to the right hand uh, as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and and forgiveness of sins and we are witnesses of, to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. You see they were witnesses but not merely standalone eyewitnesses. The Holy Spirit is the witness. They could bear witness because they had received him. John goes on to give two reasons to be confident about the reliability of this testimony. Firstly, having said that the Spirit is the one who testifies, he went on to say, because the Spirit is the truth. You remember that uh, Jesus had referred to, to the helper who was to come as the Spirit of truth. His testimony can be relied upon because he is characterized by truth. He's inherently truthful. And secondly, John argues for the reliability of this testimony by saying in verses 7 to 8, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now this is an allusion 
to the old covenant law which required the testimony of two or three witnesses if something was to be accepted as true. Uh, and the same principle is, is often mentioned in the New Testament as well. John's point is that the spirit and the water and the blood are three witnesses that testify that the man Jesus is God and therefore the assertion that Jesus is the Son of God can reliably be accepted as being true. But then you see in addition to the, the testimony of Jesus' uh, baptism and death and the testimony of the Holy Spirit, John next draws our attention to the testimony of God. In verse 9, John lays down what, what should be a self-evident principle. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Now, if we receive the testimony of men, that, that could be a conditional clause, or it could have the sense of since we receive the testimony of men, perhaps referring back to that allusion to the old covenant law and the need for two or three witnesses to accept something as true. Either way, John is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He said, if or since we receive the testimony of men with their, their limitations and their failings and their sinfulness, how much more should we receive the testimony of God. His testimony is so much greater than that of men. Why? Well, it's because he is God. He sees everything. He knows everything. He understands everything. He's utterly truthful by nature. God's testimony is always true. Everything that God says must be true. Then continuing in verse 9, we see that the testimony of God that John has in mind is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. So what is the testimony of God that he's borne concerning his son? Now, you might think it could be referring to the words at, at Jesus' baptism. When speaking of Jesus, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But you notice that, that John said, this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Uh, the contact, context suggests that the testimony God has borne concerning his son is the testimony of the spirit and the water and the blood. So to reject the testimony of the spirit and the water and the blood is to reject the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. And as John puts it in verse 10, that's to not believe God. It's to not believe what God says. Uh, anyone who rejects that testimony from God, John says, has made him a liar. John used that same expression back in chapter 1, verse 10, when he said, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Uh, and the idea here isn't just that, well, if, if we don't like what God says, if we disagree with what God says, he must be a liar. No, no, far from it. It means that if we reject what God says, we're making him out to be a liar. We're calling him a liar. We're acting as though he was a liar. Hard to imagine anything more arrogant and foolish, isn't it? To turn around to the almighty God and say, you're a liar. What a, an arrogant and foolish 
thing to say. So to not receive the testimony of history is to not only not accept the testimony of the Holy Spirit, it's to not believe the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Now they're all forms of um, external testimony but there's also an internal testimony so in verse 10 uh, tucked away in verse 10 we see uh, an internal testimony it's the testimony of Christian experience you see John says there in verse 10 whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself now that isn't speaking of a, an intellectual assent to any external testimony. It's a testimony that's known and experienced personally within. It's internal. Who has that internal testimony? Well, John says that it's whoever believes in the Son of God. In other words, it's Christians. Um, a more literal trans translation um, uh, of that would result in a bit more Yoda speak it could be the, it would be the one believing in the son of God the present tense believing indicates that this is uh, a belief a believing that is a continuing experience and notice it's not merely saying the one believing the son of God that has this in a testimony it's the one believing in the Son of God has this inner testimony. Believing in the Son of God is not simply intellectual sense of facts about him. It's to trust him. It's to, to depend on him. It's to cast yourself upon him. It's to have complete faith in him. But when my kids were young, I'd sometimes stand at the, uh, the bottom of the stairs and they'd make their way up almost to the very top of the stairs and then they'd hurl themselves down with complete abandon and absolute confidence that I would catch them. Um, surprisingly, their confidence was well-founded because I always did catch them. Um, it would be a very different story uh, if they tried it now. I'm sure I'd been flattened and broken bones would probably ensue. But you see, as small kids, they had no doubt that they would end up safely in dad's arms. Well, to believe in Jesus, the Son of God, is to have that sort of absolute confidence in him to love us and to save us and to keep us and to bring us to glory because he is the Son of God. But what is this internal testimony that John says those who trust in Christ will know? goes on in verse 11 to say, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. So the inner testimony uh, is that God gave us eternal life. Uh, again, a more literal translation yields yet more Yoda speak. Um, it would be, and this is the testimony, that eternal life God gave us. The emphasis is on eternal life. The, the testimony within 
is the eternal life that every believer in Christ has been given by God. We're told that this life is in his Son. God has given this life through his Son to those who believe in his Son. So all who are in Christ are given this eternal life. But then what does that mean? What is eternal life? Well, as the name suggests, it's certainly eternal or, or everlasting, but it's not just existence that goes on and on forever. And neither is it something that believers, the believer in Christ has to wait until their dying day to receive. There's a, an American preacher called Samuel Shoemaker who helpfully said, eternal life does not begin with death. It begins with faith. But what is it? Well, Jesus gave a very clear definition of eternal life when he was praying to his father in John 17. And in verse 3 of that chapter, uh, he said, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, eternal life is to know God by knowing Jesus Christ. It's to enjoy fellowship with him. It's to have a living relationship with him. It's to, to know that you're right with him. So for every believer, eternal life is known and experienced and enjoyed here and now in this life. It's a, a present reality that bears testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. So history, the Holy Spirit, God, Christian experience, all bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. But so what? Why does that matter? Isn't that just a piece of academic theology? Well, let's close by asking, why does it matter that Jesus is the Son of God. If the man Jesus was not the Son of God, eternal life would not be found in him, and God would be unable to give eternal life. But John's given ample evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. It's how you respond to that that is of real importance. You, you can't afford to ignore this or be indifferent towards it. It's a matter of life and death. And unlike trying to decipher uh, the water and the blood, it's actually very, very simple. It's much more easy to understand than, than, than untangling that was. John says in verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's such a clear statement, isn't it? And it shows the stark contrast between the one who has life and the one who does not have life. The one who's alive and the one who's dead. I remember uh, once going to a youth fellowship house party way back in my teens, so we're talking many decades, uh, but there was a Christian singer there uh, and the, the, the very simple words of um, the chorus of, of one of the songs that he sang has, has stuck in my mind ever, ever since. 
It was simply dead or alive, dead or alive, you're one or the other, you're dead or alive. Dead or alive, dead or alive, which one are you, brother? You're dead or alive. And that very simply but powerfully underscores the reality that everyone either has eternal life or is spiritually dead. What makes the difference? Well, it's clear in verse 12, isn't it? It depends on whether a person has the Son or does not have the Son of God. And notice that John does not say whoever has Jesus has life. Eternal life comes from the Son of God. If Jesus was not the Son of God, having him wouldn't result in eternal life. It's only having Jesus, who is the Son of God, that results in eternal life. So what is it? Sorry. So, so what is it to have the Son? One of the most famous verses in the Bible helps us to explain what that means. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, to have the son of God is to believe in him as the son that God has so lovingly sent. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Now someone might say, well, I'm not bothered. I don't want eternal life. I'm happy to continue without fellowship with God in my life. But look at the alternative. John says to not believe in Jesus as the Son of God is to perish. The fact is that that, that perishing is the default position for fallen humanity. And only believing in Jesus can change that. But then someone might say, well, perishing might not be as bad as it sounds. Well, be no doubt, it is as bad as it sounds. That's clear from John 3, uh, John 3 verse 36, where we read, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, to not believe in the Son, it's not simply to not have eternal life. It's not just not having eternal life, it's to have the wrath of God be made on you. And that's, that's a truly daunting prospect, that's a, a terrifying prospect. Who in their right minds would prefer that to eternal life? So Jesus being the Son of God matters, because were it not so, the wrath of God would remain on us all. It's because he's the Son of God that there is eternal life for all who believe in him. So in a nutshell, don't be too hung up about what's meant by the water and the blood. Uh, the salient points to grasp from this passage are that it's God who gives eternal life. Eternal life is in his Son, who God sent so that he could give eternal life and it follows that whoever has the Son has life. 
John spent most of this passage demonstrating that Jesus is the Son of God. Therefore, to receive eternal life from God, you need to come to Jesus as the Son of God and put your trust in him. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, John has written this to boost your assurance, to boost your confidence. He'll go on in verse uh, 12 to say, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to be sure. He wants you to be in no doubt. He wants you to know. And if you're not yet a believer in Christ, well, you really need to come to Jesus as the Son of God and put your trust in him. Uh, as John said in his gospel, that was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, may we all know that life in and through the Lord Jesus Christ.